This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Summer is here, and mosquitoes are too. Now I grew up in Texas, so I know how miserable mosquitoes can make life outdoors. And even here in picture-perfect California, they can still be a problem. Just the other day, I was sitting in the backyard enjoying a coffee, and I got eaten alive by those little bloodsuckers, and even in the morning. Well, folks, don't let mosquitoes bug you this summer. True Green Mosquito Defense eliminates biting mosquitoes from your yard within 24 hours of application. It's all backed by their mosquito-free guarantee. Get your first True Green Mosquito Defense application for just $39.95 or bundle your mosquito defense with a flea and tick service for just $20 more. Visit truegreen.com kick. That's T-R-U green kick. Restrictions may apply. And now, enjoy the podcast. But your campaign had an ad showing migrants climbing over walls and well, so on. Well, that's true. It poor, it, but they it, weren't actors. They're not going to be doing they that. They weren't actors. Well, no, it's true. Do you think they were actors? They weren't actors. They didn't come from Hollywood. Right. <laughs> these, were, these were people. This was an actual, you know, it happened a few days ago. And uh, They're hundreds of miles away, though. They're hundreds and hundreds of miles you know away. That, that's I not an invasion. Should, honestly, uh, I think you should let me run the country. You run CNN. All right. And if you did it well, your ratings well, let me would be ask, much better. If I, if I okay, may ask one enough. other question. Mr. President, if I may, if I may uh, ask Peter, one other ahead. question, are you worried? That's enough. That's Mr. enough. Mr. President, I, well, that's I was going to ask one of the other folks. That's had, enough. Pardon me, ma'am. I'm, I'm, Mr. Excuse President, me. That's enough. Mr. President, I had one other question, if I may ask, on the Russia investigation. Are you concerned that... That you may have I'm not concerned about anything with you the Russian investigation because it's a hoax. Are you, That's enough. Put down the mic. Mr. President, are you worried about indictments coming down in this investigation? Mr. President. I'll tell you what, CNN should be ashamed of itself having you working for them. You are a rude, terrible person. You shouldn't be working for CNN. Go ahead. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. That was the now infamous exchange between President Donald Trump and CNN's Jim Acosta during a White House press briefing last year. In the president's campaign against what he calls fake news, CNN's chief White House correspondent has become public enemy number one. It's a status that was only amplified when the White House retaliated against Jim Acosta by actually doctoring a video of that 2018 press conference and then using it to justify the unprecedented move of revoking Acosta's White House press badge. Fortunately, CNN quickly challenged the decision in court, and a Trump-appointed judge ordered Acosta's credentials restored in a dramatic victory for freedom of the press. Jim Acosta may have won the battle, but in his new book, The Enemy of the People, A Dangerous Time to Tell Truth in America, he says the president's war on the media wages on. Today, Jim joins me on the podcast to talk about Donald Trump's toxic relationship with the press and warns that it could have lasting consequences for America. He describes how former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer permanently doomed his credibility in his very first press briefing and expresses a surprising sense of pity for Spicer. But he says he has no such sympathy for his successor in the White House, Sarah Huckabee. He reveals some of the tricks that the White House uses to skew media coverage and avoid tough questions, and he says the president's war on the truth is changing journalism itself, as reporters like him have to do double duty as real-time fact-checkers. 
He shares some of the positively bone-chilling threats he's received from Trump supporters at rallies and on social media, why he hoped that the hateful anti-media rhetoric would subside after the presidential election, and how it only got worse during the 2018 midterms. Indeed, while he recalls some tense interactions with President Obama, he says the relationship between the president and the press has never been nearly as bad as it is right now. However, Jim suggests that Trump actually enjoys sparring with him in the press room and that the president views his dramatic demonization of the media as nothing more than an act intended to please his base, a theory seemingly validated by a conversation he once had with Trump insider Hope Hicks. Plus, according to Jim, Trump has a tell for when he's lying and when he's losing. Coming up with CNN chief White House correspondent Jim Acosta in just a moment. Jim Acosta is CNN's chief White House correspondent currently covering the Trump administration. He previously reported on the Obama administration from the White House and around the world. He regularly covers presidential press conferences, visits by heads of state, and issues impacting the executive branch of the federal government. Now Jim Acosta writes about covering the Trump White House in a new book titled Enemy of the People, A Dangerous Time to Tell the Truth in America. And today he joins me on the podcast making me a braver man than Sean Hannity. Jim, welcome. Hey, thanks a lot. Really appreciate the time. Well, the book is called Enemy of the People. Interesting choice of title. Is this your way of taking ownership over the president's slur against CNN, or what was your intention with that decision? Well, I think we wanted to highlight, uh, you know, the, the folks at HarperCollins approached me about this book, and and it was essentially around the time that Sarah Sanders uh, would not uh, disagree with the president's use of the term the enemy of the people. And I had been kicking around the idea of a book and they approached me and they said, hey, would you like to call it this? And I thought, you know, that's that's a good idea. I mean, I, I don't like uh, using that expression. I think it's wrong to refer to any segment of American society as the enemy of the people or the enemy. And so uh, in a sense, I, I think the title is, um, you know, it's helpful because I think it's going to help us remember a time in this country, you know, several years from now, years down the road, when the president of the United States thought it was okay to refer to people as the enemy. Uh, You know, folks will say, well, you're a reporter. You shouldn't offer your opinion on these sorts of things. I think I'm well within my lane as a straight news reporter and saying that's wrong. The president shouldn't refer to us that way. And how did CNN feel about you writing this book? Were there any concerns that you might be poking the bear? Well, you know, as a as a White House correspondent, you do have to poke and prod. I mean, that's what you do, right? I mean, uh, folks uh, don't sit there at home and expect us to be stenographers for the president uh, and just, you know, lovingly report uh, what our dear leader uh, does on a daily basis. That's not how things are done in the United States. Uh, and I do like to remind people of that from time to time, no matter who's in the White House. We are supposed to be uh, somewhat, uh, you know, in an adversarial relationship with the administration. People don't want us to be uh, propagandists or apologists or the House organ for any administration. And so I think the the folks 
at CNN understood that uh, that's the approach I bring to the White House every day, and that's the approach I bring to the book. Uh, you know, as I write in the book, you know, it, it, it is a blunt assessment of this administration, but I think there have been things going on in the first two years of Donald Trump's uh, term in office here that, that requires some very uh, tough scrutiny and tough reporting, and that's what I bring to the book. But it certainly appears that this adversarial relationship is more adversarial than before. Hmm. Give me an idea of how outside the norm this is. Previously, in your most contentious interactions with President Obama or other presidential candidates, has that relationship ever gotten as vicious as it is now? Well, I, I'll take you back to uh, a G20 summit that Barack Obama had as president. Uh, this was back in November of 2015. Uh, we were in Turkey. And ISIS was running rampant across Iraq and Syria. And it was at a news conference there where I asked Barack Obama, uh, why can't we take out these bastards? And, and you know, and talking right. about ISIS. And so that was a pretty strongly worded question. There were folks who thought it was over the top at the time. There were certainly people inside the Obama White House who thought it was over the top. I write about that in the book. Um, but, you know, Barack Obama never called the press fake news or the enemy of the people. And so, I, as I write in the book, a different kind of president requires a different kind of uh, playbook for journalists and for citizens. And, you know, if, if the president thinks it's okay to refer to the press as the enemy, my, my strong sense is, is that there should be a reasonable expectation that there's going to be some tough scrutiny. When Trump took office, did you have at least some hope that the angry anti-media rhetoric of the campaign was going to dissipate? And if nothing else, just as a practical matter, after all, you're kind of going to be stuck together for a while then. Hmm. Perhaps the White House might foster a more cordial, if not actually collegial, working relationship with the press. Well, I, as I write in the book, I was out there on the campaign trail and saw Donald Trump at rally after rally refer to us as the disgusting news media, the dishonest news media, liars, scum, uh, thieves, criminals. I think I've, I've thought of all of the slurs that he used against us, uh, you know, and we would go into these arenas and people don't realize this. If you don't go to a Trump rally, you don't understand this. We would go into these arenas and there would be like 20 or 30 of us in the press corps and there would be 10, 15,000 people screaming at us. And, wow. you know, as I write in the book... You know, there are times when it felt like this wasn't America anymore because, you know, you go to the shopping mall, you go to a restaurant, there aren't people screaming at one another and calling each other names and that sort of thing. And, you know, here we were, we're at a political rally and being treated in this fashion. And so I was very uh, pessimistic about uh, the chances that Donald Trump would somehow uh, transform into this, you know, inclusive, you know, figure, Reagan-esque type figure that a lot of, I think, pundits and people in conventional wisdom Washington uh, were hoping for. There were a lot of folks who thought, you know, the, the weight of the, you know, the majesty of the presidency would rest upon his shoulders and transform into, transform into, into one of our founding fathers or something like that. I, I just didn't think that was ever going to come to pass because of the way uh, he behaved out on the campaign trail. And, you know, you don't have to talk about just the way he treated the press. This is somebody who said I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. Somebody who referred yeah. to Mexican immigrants as rapists and criminals said that John McCain wasn't a war hero. I mean, we can go on and on about all of these things. So I didn't have a whole lot of hope that 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 type of individual, somebody who behaves in that manner, would somehow change because, you know, he had been handed the keys to the Oval Office. Going back to the animosity at the rallies, what was more chilling for you? The faceless threats that you were getting via email and social media or having people within striking distance of you at these rallies threatening you or chanting CNN is fake news and mm -hmm. go away and whatever other kind of things they said? 
Well, certainly the way we're treated at the rallies uh, is not good, and it, it can be menacing at times. And I, you know, I write about that in the book. You know, there was one rally in Tampa where you know I had about seventy or eighty people all around me, you know, chanting all sorts of things, uh, you know, wearing T-shirts that say "F the media" and, and that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, but you know, the, the other thing that is important uh, that we recognize, and it's one of the reasons why I wrote this book. I think the American people have a right to know about this that the journalists, the reporters, the anchors, people who cover this president on a daily basis, they've been subjected to a deluge of this kind of uh, hostility on their social media accounts. I write about this from time to time in the book. You know, if there's a big uh, contentious exchange between me and the president or something that his supporters don't like, I can go into my Instagram, my Twitter feeds, my Facebook feeds, and I can see all sorts of horrific messages, uh, flat-out death threats, uh, I receive wow. about one a week now, um, you know, as a reporter covering this White House. And, you know, they don't mince any words here, you know, talking about, you know, decapitating you, setting you on fire, castrating you, uh, hanging you uh, and that sort of thing. I mean, very vivid, uh, vicious kind of, uh, of stuff. And, you know, the question that I ask is, is this the kind of political culture that we want to hand off to the next generation of Americans. Remember when we were growing up, our parents and grandparents would say, I want to leave uh, to the kids a better country than the one I got. Folks our age just don't talk like that anymore. And we really need to go back and I think recapture some of that because it's been lost in our society. And I think that's resulting in a very coarse and nasty political culture that isn't doing anybody any good. Yeah, and it's shocking to read in this book about some of the precautions that you've had to take, particularly mm. during the most contentious moments with the White House when you describe uh, tossing a football with your son in the street and having to have an armed security man standing there with you yeah. in the front yard. Yeah, and, you know, when the pipe bomb a, a suspect was arrested right after, uh, you know, a pipe bomb was sent to CNN, uh, you know, it was discovered that on this individual's uh, Twitter account, he had been directing death threats at me. And, you know, one of those uh, death threats had an image of a decapitated goat uh, and, and so on. And so it was pretty nasty stuff. Wow. At that point, I was assigned more bodyguards than I already had uh, going with me to rallies. I had one or two going with me to rallies before. Um, towards the end of the midterm campaign cycle, I had four bodyguards with me at every rally. And I just thought to myself, my God, this is over the top. You know, how is it that I need four bodyguards just to go to a political rally? Um, yeah. And then after our, our press pass case, uh, where we, you know, won and, you know, I got my press pass back, it was on that day that somebody tweeted, kill Jim Acosta. And at that point, I needed round-the-clock security for about 72 hours, and that is, you know, when I lay out that detail in the book where I'm throwing the football with my son in the front yard, and there's a guy with a gun on his belt 50 feet away, uh, part of the security detail that was given to me. We, we're way out of control. The rhetoric's gotten way out of control in this country. If reporters need bodyguards and security around the clock because they do stories or say things in live shots that the president and his people don't like, that's out of wow. control. And I think it's not, you know, people will say, oh, you, that, that's terrible, Jim Acosta. Why are you, you're going way out of your lane as a reporter? You're being a commentator and so on. No, I'm just describing exactly what's going on right now. And I think people need to recognize that this is a way out outside the norms of normal presidential behavior, normal uh, political behavior in our society. And when Trump supporters get aggressive with you at these rallies, how do you handle that? Do you ignore them or do you sometimes engage? 
Well, one of the things I learned at these rallies is if you don't engage with them, if you don't go and talk to them, they take it as a challenge and they want to kick it up a notch even more. So yeah. uh, it's sort of been an anthropological experiment for me. Um, and so what I've done is I have decided at, at these rallies to go up and talk to these folks. If folks want me to come up and take a selfie or sign a T-shirt or something like that, I'm happy to do it. Uh, sometimes they'll take the selfie and then they'll give me the middle finger after they get their selfie. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm happy to do it because I think folks want to get things off their chest. And I remember talking to this one woman in Columbia, South Carolina, and I write about this in the book where she tells me I need to stop asking so many stupid questions because I'm going to start a civil war and people are going to start shooting one another. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, my goodness, our folks are so emotionally invested in this president that, you know, you can't ask questions without provoking, you know, armed conflict in this country. That just doesn't make any sense. And one of the things that I discovered uh, throughout this process and covering this president going to his rallies is I'll go to these rallies and then people will say to me essentially what they just saw on Fox News that night before or what they've been reading on social media. It's almost uh, they've, you know, they've absorbed the information. They've absorbed the attacks on us in conservative media and they regurgitate it back to us, to our faces at these rallies. And, you know, one of the things that I outline in the book is that there is sometimes a cause and effect between, you know, the, the, the way they lash out at us in conservative media and sometimes in the Trump campaign and what in the behavior that we see at the rallies. And it's, it's disturbing. Now, I can take it. You know, I've been doing this for 25 years. I've covered, uh, you know, I went to the Iraq War in Baghdad, covered that there, covered natural disasters, covered Hurricane Katrina, four presidential campaigns. I think I've seen a lot and experienced a lot and can take a lot. But my sense of it is, is that people need to understand that this is going on. So mm-hmm. they can talk to their fellow Americans and say, you know what, I, I understand you, you love the president. You have that red bag of hat. Uh, you're, you're a nice person. God bless you. But don't treat your fellow American like they're the enemy or talk to them in ways that you wouldn't talk to your own family members. You say that the animosity at the press was far worse during the midterms in 2018 than it had been during the 2016 election, particularly at the rallies. Why do you think that is? I think to some extent that was my own personal observation that, you know, during the 2016 campaign, I had not been isolated by the president as somebody who was a big adversary of his. You know, when that happened at that press conference in January 2017, when he said you are fake news, uh, it really, you know, kicked up a notch for me. Uh, Back in 2016, I think there to some extent, a lot of folks didn't think he was going to win. He didn't think he was going to win. And so there were, I think there was a sense was uh, at the time that was basically, you know, oh, this is just more of his reality TV shtick. It's harmless. He's not going to win anyway. So, you know what, anything goes at these rallies. And then he won. And I think a lot of folks got emotionally invested in him. And I think what they saw coming in the midterms was the potential for, um, you know, Judgment Day, where, you know, his, you know, some of his um, political, uh, you know, I think, capital that he has here in Washington was about to be, you know, taken away from him. You know, the Republicans were going to lose power in the House. And I think folks sensed that. And there's maybe a sense of desperation on his side. And we saw that towards the tail end of the midterm election cycle, where he was really ratcheting up the attacks on the press and on immigrants. You know, that was a big part of his midterm strategy, going after immigrants. And I think that added to a lot of the volatility that we saw out there on the campaign trail. To go back to the earliest days of this presidency, 
Some might say that things got off on the wrong foot right from the start when former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer used his very first press briefing to falsely insist that Trump's inauguration crowd was the biggest in history. Mm. Do you think that he was ever able to recover his credibility with the press after that? I really don't think so. I think uh, at that moment, uh, his credibility was shattered. Uh, with the White House press corps, you know, when you your very first performance in that briefing room, and and maybe I hold that briefing room up in higher esteem or higher regard than than many Americans do, uh, but I think it's a it's a it's a pretty important and special place. Uh, you know, press secretaries and presidents have come into that briefing room over the years during some major crises. And it's our expectation from, you know, the perspective of as a as White House reporter is that when the press secretary or the president comes into that room, that they're going to give you honest, accurate, reliable information. And for Sean Spicer to come in there and just tell this huge whopper, I mean, it was just, I call it in the book the first <laughs> lie because, you know, it was the very first big lie of this administration. I remember, you know, it was a very... Uh, first full day of his term in office, he went out to the CIA. People don't remember this, but he stood in front of a memorial to fallen CIA officers and started tearing into the press because we had, uh, he said, misreported his crowd size on purpose. No, I mean, you could look at aerial photographs and put them up with side by side with Barack Obama's. He didn't have as many people at his inauguration. You can chalk that up to whatever reason. It's not a big deal that he didn't have a, a bigger crowd size, but this got under his skin. And that clearly was something that, you know, drove the president to send Sean Spicer into that room to scream at us and berate us and claim that the president had the biggest inauguration crowd size in the history of this country. And, you know, one of the things that I write about in the book is that it was so clearly, I mean, it was so easily disproven in the hours that followed that statement. You know, we could just go on Google and find uh, various ways to disprove the things that he had said in the briefing room. And that seems to be the case with so many of their falsehoods and half-truths and lies, is that you can just go on Google and find out fairly quickly that much of what they're telling you isn't true. And so, you know, this is a problem that we've had ever since the administration began. The Washington Post fact checker recently concluded that the president has uttered some 10,000 false or misleading statements since coming into office. That's 5,000 a year. My God, that's more than 10 a day. And so, you know, that has made us all fact checkers in real time. We've spent a lot of our time and energy from the moment we wake up and look at the notifications on our uh, lock screen on our phones to the time we go to bed. We spend much of our time fact checking this president, fact checking the people who work for him. And I think that that is, that is to their detriment. That is that has affected them. And people say, oh, well, the press, the press, the press. We're not the ones making up these falsehoods. They are. And we have to do our jobs and fact check them. And my goodness, what would be our sense of the truth and reality in, the, in this country if we let all of those whoppers just hang out there? I just don't think that's sure. doing our job as reporters. And, I, and going back to Sean, it really affected his credibility when he first came into that briefing room and did this. And just to add to that, not to belabor the point, but when the Mueller report comes out and it's found that Sarah Sanders had admitted to FBI agents that she passed on false information in the White House briefing room, that's in the Mueller report. She passed Mm -hmm. on false information. That, again, is another one of those episodes where I think it's sort of, you know, it cements this legacy of dishonesty on behalf of this administration in ways that we just have never seen anything like this before. And I was surprised that several times in your book you expressed sympathy and maybe even pity for former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer. He's a guy who lied to your face day after day. Why would you waste any sympathy on someone like that? (laughs) 
Yeah, I guess, I, you know, I know people have said that to me. And I don't know. I grew up in this area and I, you know, grew up with uh, kids uh, whose parents worked at the State Department and, you know, worked at Congress, members of Congress. And my, my parents were blue collar uh, workers. And so I didn't have that kind of upbringing. Um, but I, I try to, as best as I can, see the human side of all of these characters that, you know, flash on our TV screens uh, on a daily basis, the, the cast of characters in this current drama that we're watching right now. I knew Sean Spicer before he became the White House press secretary, and he just wasn't this kind of guy. You know, you would call him up when he worked at the RNC. He'd answer your call or call you back. He'd give you information. He was a decent guy. He might poke some fun at you and that sort of thing, and he had that sort of sense of humor. Um, but he wasn't this this guy that he became as White House press secretary. And one of the things that you would hear from time to time is, you know, who is this Sean Spicer? I don't know this Sean Spicer. And a lot of the same yeah. questions were asked about Sarah Sanders. People would say, whatever happened to Sarah Sanders? You know, she was a different person, you know, before she worked at the White House. There's something about Donald Trump when you get pulled into his vortex. It changes who you are. And I think one of the things that uh, that Sarah forgot uh, and that Sean Spicer forgot uh, is that when you're the White House press secretary, you work on behalf of the American people. You don't work for the Trump organization. You don't work for one of Donald Trump's golf courses or hotels. You work for the American people, and we are paying their salaries. You know, the White House press secretary makes something like $180,000 a year. That's a whole lot of money in Washington, D.C., or really anywhere. And I think mm -hmm. for that kind of money and that kind of prestige, uh, you need to keep in mind that you don't just work for the person in the Oval Office. You work for everybody. And I noticed that you have considerably less sympathy for Sarah Sanders than you did for Sean Spicer. Why? Well, you know, with Sarah, I mean, th this is just, uh, you know, it takes dishonesty to a new dimension, you know, uh, yeah. like something out of Stranger Things, you know, like we're in the upside down <laughs> world or something like that. You know, when they took away my press pass, I'll never, I'll never forget this. You know, they put out a doctored video to try to justify the right. revocation of my press pass. You know, and they, they put this video out there. I think it came from Infowars or something like that and was sped up to make it look like I had karate chopped this person who came from the microphone. Everybody remembers that. And I just right. thought, you know, well, if you need a doctored video to prove your case, you must not have a very good case to begin with. And, mm -hmm. you know, it just said to me, you know, we, we talk about 1984 and George Orwell, and, and a lot of this conversation began when President Trump came into office. And, you know, to some extent that you could say that's hyperbolic, that's over the top. We shouldn't, you know, that may feel that way to you because you don't like Donald Trump and he, you might find him reprehensible and so on. But George Orwell, 1984, give me a break. But when the White House press secretary puts out a doctored video uh, of something that they claim is a reporter, you know, assaulting uh, an intern to justify the revocation of a press pass. I think that crosses into George Orwell 1984 territory. And, you know, I'll tell you, one of the things that we need to worry about heading into this 2020 campaign, and I'm not sure a lot of people are aware of this or are focused on this, there is something called deep fakes uh, that has been talked about in the press in the, in the last several weeks or so where political operatives, political campaigns now have the technological capability where they can manipulate video and audio in, in a way where it you can't even tell anymore that the video has been manipulated. And so what that the, the potential for that sort of thing to really wreak havoc in our political system, I think, is quite significant. And it should worry a lot of people. You remember just uh, not too long ago, Nancy Pelosi, remember when they slowed down the audio of Nancy Pelosi right. to make her sound... 
you know, as if she, you know, something was wrong with her. Uh, you know, that is the kind of manipulation of video and audio that I think should co- cause a lot of great concern out there to people. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with CNN's Jim Acosta when we come back in just a moment. If there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment and get help at your own time and at your own pace. Anything you share is confidential. And it's so convenient you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. If for some reason you're not happy with your counselor, though, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Kick-Ass News listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code KICK. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com kick. Then simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com kick. And now, back to the podcast. It is getting harder to fact-check the president because you have this rise of conspiracy media parading as legitimate news outlets. And I remember the video of that time when InfoWars ambushed you at a rally Mm. and you were asked about the banning of InfoWars on social media over false statements. And you gave a very good answer in that case. Does it irk you that a lot of Americans confer equal legitimacy on a CNN story as they do on something like InfoWars or even QAnon, oftentimes more than they trust CNN. It's extraordinary. And, you know, I write about this in the book. I'm glad you brought up that part of the book because it is something that I will always remember myself. You know, I was coming out of this rally in Charlottesville, West Virginia, and all of a sudden this woman pounces and says, I'm so-and-so with InfoWars and we'd like to talk to you about you know, Alex Jones being banned on social media and so on. And don't you think he deserves uh, First Amendment rights and so on? And we had this lengthy debate about it. And I said, listen, I don't think you can put InfoWars in the same category as CNN. Remember, just recently, InfoWars was making this claim out there that the Sandy Hook school shooting was a hoax. My God, you know, folks, we got to get back to reality. That is way out of control, false, negative, uh, just, you know, completely made up out of whole cloth, stuff and has no it's not tethered to reality in any sort of way people can't put that on the same uh plane as cnn that just is that doesn't hold any water um what i think we need to get back to in this country is people having a little more faith in one another if you know the person in the red maga hat the woman in the pink resist t-shirt uh we're all playing for the same team we're all americans And the sense of it is, is that, you know, if you have a conspiracy theorist in chief as president, you're going to have a lot of conspiracy theorists uh, supporting him. And I saw this at the campaign rallies, you know, where you would see the people in uh, the QAnon T-shirts and so on. Again, another one of these false conspiracy theories that that it's just not tethered to anything in the real world. And I don't know where it comes from or why people uh, subscribe to these points of view. But it is disturbing. And I think what folks need to realize out there is that there's a reason why you have 
brand name, uh, you know, long lasting, you know, traditional news outlets out there that have been doing the work day in and day out since we were little kids. And, you know, the networks, the cable networks, um, the major newspapers around the country, these are still good, reliable sources of information. And I know people might say, well, that's just because you work for them. No, I mean, you know, these news organizations are filled with a lot of human beings who are exactly like you. We, you know, we put our pants on one leg at a time. We were all raised in communities and uh, where you had, you know, teachers who loved us and, and uh, you know, all those sorts of things. And we're just as American as everybody else. And I think folks have lost sight of that. I remember this one campaign rally where a man came up to me and he said, I'm really surprised that you uh, said the Pledge of Allegiance there. And I thought to myself, well, of course I said the Pledge of Allegiance. I went to elementary school in Virginia where I said the Pledge of Allegiance every day. But people have been uh, misled to such a large extent about what we do and who we are that we've become foreign to our fellow Americans. Mm -hmm. We've been dehumanized and de-Americanized by uh, the president of the United States. And folks will say, well, why is it that the uh, image of the press is so low? Why are you know, well, if you had the president of the United States running us down on a daily basis, yeah, I think that there's a a strong chance that folks might have a more negative attitude about us. Yeah, I was heartened to read that there were some brief moments of light here where I think there was one person who approached you at a rally who had flipped you off previously (laughs) at another rally, and he actually came up and apologized. To go back to kind of the tricks of the trade that the White House uses to control the story, not everything rises to the level of a doctored video, but uh, you talk about how they use other tactics to either avoid answering tough questions or to stack the deck with softballs from quote-unquote friendly media outlets. Mm. Can you talk about some of those? Yeah, I, you know, I write about this in the book. You know, the, the senior administration official told me one time that uh, the press secretary had a strategy called stick to the middle, where, you know, they would just call on reporters in the middle of the briefing room and they try to stay away from the troublemakers on the sides. And, you know, my seat was on the side of the briefing room, so I suppose they were talking about me. Um, but, yeah, you know, and one of the things that Sean would do and then Sarah would do when she was press secretary, they would start the briefing by calling on Fox News and then they'd call on a mainstream news outlet. And then they, they'd go back to ping, uh, conservative media and sort of ping pong back and forth between conservative press and traditional press uh, throughout these briefings. It's very different than what happened during, say, the Obama administration, where they would start with the Associated Press and then go to Reuters and then maybe take mm-hmm. a question from a television network. Um, they, they, they use, uh, to some extent, members of the conservative media as a way to shield uh, themselves from scrutiny and I think also to lower the temperature because if they go to a traditional mainstream reporter who starts asking tough questions, they're, okay, hold on a second, I need a timeout so I can you know, rest my brain for a few seconds or something, and then they'll call on somebody who's going to ask a you know, sort of a self-serving softball question. And they're they're fairly shameless about it. They're willing to do it because they know it helps advance their agenda. And I suppose some of that is understandable, but it is a tactic that they use, no question about it. And another more amusing tactic that the White House has used, uh, you say that they spring a mystery guest on you in the press briefing. So yeah. you guys have to waste more time on their chosen topic of the day instead of more pressing issues. That's right. And, and uh, you know, there have been times when, you know, they, they would bring somebody into the room and think that, well, this is going to, you know, control the message for the day. And then the message gets out of their control. Uh, yeah. You know, Stephen Miller is one of the examples that I bring up. They brought him into the briefing one day. 
uh, to talk about how they wanted to change uh, the legal immigration system, not the illegal, the legal immigration system in our country. And, you know, I didn't think Stephen was going to call on me. And finally, at the very end of the briefing, he calls on me and I said, well, you know, isn't what you're talking about contrary to the tradition of uh, welcoming immigrants in this country? And what about the Statue of Liberty? What about the poem that's, uh, you know, inscribed there uh, on the Statue, Statue of Liberty? Give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Uh, you know, Emma Lazarus's poem, The New Colossus. And I'll, I'll never forget what Stephen said. He said, well, that's not what the Statue of Liberty is all about. The, that poem was added after the Statue of Liberty was was put there. And I told Stephen that day, I said, that's National Park revisionism. You know, uh, are you trying to tell me that the Statue of Liberty does not stand as a symbol to immigrants? Because that's not at all what I remember growing up in this country. But it is an example of how they are fully comfortable coming into that White House briefing room or, you know, anywhere, really, pulling the wool over our eyes and telling us that up is, up is mm-hmm. down and black is white, uh, real is fake. Um, that is part of this Orwellian, you know, tradition that we've seen put in place over here at the White House. And it's one that, you know, if you're a reporter, uh, you, you have two, two choices. And I talk about this throughout the book. I call it a question of what would you do? Uh, in, as a reporter in the White House briefing room, I suppose you could just take it and just, you know, if they're going to pull the wool over our eyes and BS us, you can just report that as fact and, you know, go cash your paycheck and go home and crack open a beer and go about living your life. But my sense of it is, my God, we can't have a country where, you know, you just accept these half-truths and falsehoods and lies coming from the administration and then pass that on to the American people as as reality, that's not doing your job as a reporter. And, you know, a lot of folks in our business, they spend a lot of time worrying and wringing their hands over what the people in conservative media will say about us. And, oh, goodness, you know, Sean Hannity said something about us last night. And, you know, well, that's that's tough. I don't get, I don't really give a crap what those people say about me and say about what we do. I'm just as worried about and more worried about what regular folks at home are thinking on a regular basis. You know, folks who aren't, you know, dyed in the wool uh, partisans on any side of the political spectrum. And they're the ones who are writing us and telling us because I get emails and, and messages from folks all the time saying, you know, ask a follow-up question. If the person before you uh, doesn't get their question asked, answered, uh, you know, make sure you follow up and, and get the, the truth out of these guys. There are, there are folks who come up to us all the time and say, keep the pressure on. Don't stop. Uh, keep trying to get answers out of those folks. We have to be just as worried about what those folks think as uh, what the, you know, the people who call us names on conservative media. So that's, I, yeah. I look at it as we're doing our jobs for the American people and, you know, damn the torpedoes. And that interaction with Stephen Miller made for one of the most memorable moments that I can remember in the press room. And your back and forths with President Trump have almost become legendary by now. Uh, do you think the president enjoys sparring with you? I think he does. I think he sees it as something that is, it, it excites his base. It's something that he finds useful. You know, if he can demonize us, uh, he can change the, the storyline of the day. You know, I was in um, uh, Japan just over the weekend and we had a press conference and uh, I asked him a tough question. You know, what's what's with you cozying up with all these dictators at these summits? Right. And, you know, Kim Jong-un, you know, well, we met with him in, in North Korea, but Vladimir Putin, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, you know, uh, you know, all these uh, Xi Jinping from China, all of these dictators and autocrats, what's with you backslapping and, you know, cozying up to these guys? And he immediately started asking me about my book. And, 
And I said, well, Mr. President, you know, I'll get you an autographed copy. I'll make sure I get one to you when I get back to Washington. But then I went back to pressing him on the Saudis and how they were essentially found to have been uh, responsible for the killing of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi, somebody who lived in Virginia right outside of Washington. And, you know, I, I think that to some extent, you know, he finds this as sort of a, as an extension of uh, his time on reality TV. You know, if he can mix it up with one of the cast members, uh, as he may see it in the White House press corps, you know, he can, um, you know, juice his base, I suppose. Mm. Uh, but I don't look at it that way. You know, he might want to, you know, throw out some zingers and that sort of thing. But my sense of it is, is that we still have to keep pressing forward and try to get answers from him. Uh, but yeah, yeah the, we do have these these back and forth. I think he enjoys the sparring too. As I write in the book, uh, he he loves the coverage, but he hates the scrutiny. <laughs> yeah, and there's a revealing moment in the book that takes place, I think, later on the same day that Trump called you fake news in February 2017. Mm-hmm. You get a call from Hope Hicks. What did yeah. she say to you, and how did you interpret what she was telling you? Yeah, we had this press conference. It was his first press conference as president, and it was in the East Room of the White House, and. You know, we were talking about the firing of the national security advisor, Michael Flynn, uh, and the Russia investigation, and he was calling the Russia investigation and so on uh, fake news. And he came to me and uh, he said, well, I'm thinking about changing your name from fake news to very fake news. And he got a laugh out of the crowd there and, and, and people in the room laughed. And it's fine. It's funny. I think he's got good comic timing. It's one of his one of the things he I think you could give him credit for. Uh, but then after the press conference is over. I get a phone call and it's, hi, Jim, it's Hope Hicks. I thought, oh my goodness, hi, Hope, what's going on? And this is somebody who's one of his top aides and worked for him during the campaign. And she goes, Jim, I just want you to know the president thought you were very professional today. And he said, Jim gets it. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute. He just called me very fake news during the press conference. He got all animated about the Russia investigation and how he thinks everything is unfair and how we're covering him and so on. But then after the press conference is over, I get a compliment from one of his top aides who said, he's, I'm very professional and Jim gets it. I think what that was an indication of, and I confirmed this with other uh, sources of mine, is that early on in the administration, the president saw uh, much of what he does as an act. And mm-hmm. the way he goes after the press is sort of a shtick that he's continuing from his reality TV days, you're, you're fired, uh, became your fake news and so on. And as I write throughout the book, and I, I try to, you know, draw this line from the beginning of the administration to the midterms, it becomes, I think, something that gets out of his control. The rhetoric gets out of his control. He goes from fake news to the enemy of the people. And I could see it in my own social media feeds. And I could, you know, I could see it at the rallies, the hostility levels going up. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was trying to escalate things. I think to some extent to see if we would back down in our coverage. And just the other day when he was with Kim Jong-un, he was bashing our coverage and so on, saying he doesn't get enough credit for all this stuff. But what he doesn't recognize, and I think what some of his top people don't recognize, is that he directs this hostility at us. It's then absorbed by many of his supporters who then lash out at us in ways that make us feel endangered. And do Mm -hmm. I take any joy in writing a book where I lay out some of the dangers for reporters out there? No, I don't. But the reason why I did it is because if, if, God forbid, we have a situation in this country where a reporter is seriously injured or killed directly as a result of the president using this kind of rhetoric, then I think at that point, the United States of America ceases being the kind of country that you and I grew up with. We then cross the line, we cross into this new territory where we join these other countries around the world where reporters are no longer safe doing their jobs. 
And my God, what kind of world is that going to be at that point? We're supposed to be this beacon of hope and freedom all over the world. The rest of the world is watching what we're doing right now. And if reporters yeah. are no longer safe doing our jobs, what is that impact going to be on news organizations here in the U.S.? I'll tell you what it's going to be. You're going to have some news organizations saying, well, you know, maybe we should uh, not be so tough on this president. Maybe we shouldn't be so tough on the administration because somebody got hurt. And at that point, then you don't have the, the kind of scrutiny that I think comes with being the leader of the free world and being the president of the United States. That's a job. I'm sorry if you can't take it, Mr. President, but that's a job that comes with intense scrutiny. And if you can't handle that job without lashing out at the press in ways that endangers them, then I think, you know, serious questions have to be asked as to whether or not this person should be president of the United States. Let me ask you this. You've had enough interactions with the president to have a pretty good sense of the man. Does he have any tells? Yeah, I mean, I and I write about this. Uh, you know, there are moments when he's calling us fake news and so on. I'll, I'll give you another example. Uh, after Charlottesville, when the president said there was blame to go around on both sides, and then he corrected himself and gave this other statement a couple of days later where he condemned the white supremacists and the Nazis down in Charlottesville. And it was after that where I, I said to Mr. President, you said you were going to have a press conference today. And he said, uh, well, we just had one. And I said, well, we didn't get to ask you any questions. Can we ask you some questions? <laughs> and he said, I, I'd like to take questions from real news. You're fake news. And at that point, I said, well, Mr. President, you spread some fake news yourself. Um, but, you know, when right. he when he uses that term fake news, it almost always and almost every circumstance is a situation where his back is up against the wall. Uh, if you go back to the January 2017 press conference at Trump Tower, when he was being asked about, you know, do the Russians have compromising information on you? That's when he first used that term fake news. Almost mm -hmm. every time you go back and look at every one of those press conferences where he uses that term, almost all of those circumstances, he's in trouble. And if he's calling us fake news, as I say in the book, it's sort of like a poker tell. You know he's got a losing hand. Well, let's talk about that now famous press conference after the midterms. You say that you had long been preparing for the possibility that the White House might try to revoke your press credentials. Did you have any idea that that was going to be the day? I didn't expect it that day, but I knew that there were signs that it could come. Uh, there was an Easter egg roll in 2018 where I asked uh, the president a question and they didn't like it. And Brad Parscale, his campaign manager for 2020, said Jim Acosta should have his press credentials revoked. And I asked him questions uh, when the president met with Kim Jong-un in Singapore in 2018, and they didn't like a question that I asked uh, in, in one of those sessions. And Brad Parscale was on Twitter saying Jim Acosta should have his credentials revoked. And so there, I, I do think they were planting the seeds there for what they were going to do. But it was on that day, right after the midterms, um, we were in the East Room of the White House having a press conference. And I asked the president about how he called uh, that caravan of migrants an invasion uh, heading up towards the border right before the midterms, and he didn't like the question, and we went back and forth, and that was when the intern tried to retrieve the microphone from me. And after it was over, I went out, did my live shot, did my piece for that night, went out you know, for dinner later on in the evening, had to come back for one more live shot, and that was when, right before I got to the Secret Service gate, I saw the notification on my phone. It wasn't to me, it was to everybody, that my press pass had been revoked. And it was uh, it was a surreal moment because I once again, you know, as people people like to say, well, you know, Jim, you shouldn't be a part of the story. Well, at that at that point, I, you know, I, I was part of the story. I had become the story and it wasn't, a, you know, um, any fault of mine. It wasn't any of my doing it. You know, that is what happened. My press pass had been suspended. 
But I'll tell you, CNN did not was did not waver at all. We weren't wishy-washy about what to do next. We immediately knew that our we had a First Amendment case on our hands, and we took the administration to court, and we won. And a Trump-appointed judge, a federal judge, ruled in our favor. And I'll tell you, one of the most uh, amazing things uh, throughout my entire time covering this White House unfolded during that court case, and I write about it in the book. The president's own lawyers, Justice Department lawyers, paid for with your tax dollars, went into that courtroom before a Trump-appointed federal judge and made the argument that the president of the United States can pick and choose who covers him at the White House. They made the argument the president of the United States can decide if he doesn't like the reporting that you're doing, doesn't like the coverage that you're providing, that they can revoke your press pass and tell you to get out. Now, to me, that's not, is that America? Is that the United States? I, I think not. I don't think we want a situation in our country where the president can do that. And I'll tell you, there would have been a ripple effect had the administration been successful. You would have had governors and mayors saying, I don't like this newspaper. I don't like this TV station. And say, listen, you know, uh, President Trump won his case in CNN versus Trump. Why can't we do it in uh, Kansas mm-hmm. City or in San Francisco? And uh, it would have put a real uh, chilling effect, I think, on our profession and on the ability of journalists to hold uh, public officials accountable. And thank goodness we won that case, because had we lost that case, I think it would have been a, a real serious blow to the First Amendment. And I'm not saying that uh, somebody, well, I'm just patting myself on the back for this court case. The White House Correspondents Association submitted a statement to the court uh, that said, uh, you know, the president of the United States is not doing his job at Trump Tower. He's not talking about kicking reporters out of Trump Tower. He's talking about kicking reporters out of the White House. Two very different things. And let me ask you this. Do you think that the White House Press Association could have done more, not just in this situation, but in other situations where the White House has tried to exert an unusual amount of control over the press? Well, it's a very tough situation because, you know, uh, as the old saying goes, uh, you know, they they have the furniture, you know, it's their White House Mm -hmm. and we're reporters there showing up on a daily basis. And so it's not exactly a level uh, playing field in that regard. You know, I think there probably could have been times here and there, uh, especially during the, the Trump campaign, where, you know, they were saying some things that were just way over the top about the press where he was saying things that were not acceptable, where, you know, press organizations could have said more. I think, you know, that could have been the case also during his first two years in office. But the Correspondents Association was putting out statements from time to time, and and there's not a whole lot more you can do than provide statements. Um, You know, as I write in the book, uh, you know, initially they they did not put a statement out uh, before we went into court. Um, And I talked to an official with the organization who said, you know, we were just trying to pull everybody together to do something. And then they finally, they eventually did, which was, which was very, um, you know, it was well received on my end, that's for sure. And one of the things that I write about in this book, despite, you know, some of my uh, tangling with Fox News from time to time, Fox News was one of the very first organizations, media organizations to, uh, to join us in our, in our case and to, you know, back us uh, in taking the administration to court because I, I think they also recognize that conservatives are not going to stay in power forever and that, you know, it's not so good when the shoe's on the other foot. You don't want a situation where you have a Democratic administration coming in, if you're uh, looking at this from the Fox News perspective, uh, and they say, you know, well, Donald Trump did it to CNN. We're going to do it to you guys. Um, I think people in this town recognized that, you know, we, we better hang together when it comes to these sorts of issues because, you know, you can't have administrations coming in and picking and choosing 
who gets to cover them. That's not how it works mm-hmm. in Washington. That's not, that's not how it works in the yeah. United States. As we wind down here, what's the relationship like between mainstream outlets in the press room like CNN and conservative outlets, not just Fox News or The Washington Times, but some of the more fringe ones like Breitbart, Newsmax that Ooh. occupy that center of the briefing room? Well, you know, I think that it's uh, unmistakable uh, that there's been a big change. No question yeah. about it. I mean, you have, uh, you know, I saw Seb Gorka in the White House briefing room recently, and he was there to do some talk <laughs> radio stuff with president or really? members of the administration. Uh, wow. They have sort of a backstage pass uh, at this mm-hmm. White House, uh, the, you know, in ways that I've never seen before uh, with any administration now. You know, Barack Obama and the Obama administration, they liked MSNBC. Sure, did, were they uh, favorable to more favorable to MSNBC to, than to CNN at times? Definitely, I think so. Uh, but what we've seen over the last couple of years has been pretty remarkable. You know, the president initially during uh, the beginning of the administration would hold joint news conferences uh, with a head of state. And the two questions that he would take at this press conference with a foreign head of state, one would go to Fox News and the other one would go to another conservative media outlet. And then that would be the end of the press conference. And so there were a number of occasions where he was able to evade questions on the Russia investigation and so on, mainly because they, who they were picking and choosing for questions at some of these press conferences. And so to some extent, conservative media, they've become, and I don't like, I don't take any joy in this, but they've become propagandists and apologists for this administration. They have, I think, collectively formed what appears to be the infancy of state media in this country. And I think that, you know, if we all respect uh, the rights of a free press and so on, I think you could see in some of those early warning signs um, a potential, you know, risk to our democracy. If an administration can come in and cobble together in essence, a state media type of situation, uh, that doesn't really work for anybody. Hmm. Uh, I have to ask, what's your initial impression of the new press secretary, Stephanie Grisham? Hmm. You know, I think she's off to a very good start. I will say this, give credit where credit is due. I was over there in in Seoul, South Korea over the weekend uh, when the president was meeting with Kim Jong-un. And, you know, the North Koreans were trying to rough up the American press a little bit and rough up some of the White House folks really? who were trying to get us into that room. And Stephanie Grisham, you know, kind of you see it in that video, sort of barrels into one of those North Koreans and knocks <laughs> them out of the way so our folks can get in there. Uh, I think that's a very welcome sign. And it's an indication that Stephanie understands that the job of press secretary is to work with the press. And in the long run, that helps her boss. It's not, that's a good thing for her boss, not a bad thing. And I think she understands that. And I thought it was a, a, a very uh, welcoming sign yeah. uh, heading into her tenure as press secretary. Yeah, she might be tougher on North Korea than the president. <laughs> she she might be. And, and, you know, the, and the North Koreans are a tough bunch. I remember when I was in Singapore uh, covering Kim Jong-un, and they did the same thing to us. I was in the press pool that really? day. And they came in after we had our shots established and so on and came in and started elbowing us and pushing us around. And a a few of uh, the folks in the press pool that day were really getting up in their grills and saying, hey, back off. Uh, Not that they could understand what we were saying. But, you know, in North Korea, they're used to pushing the press around or whatever they call, you know, their (laughs) state media folks. Um, Here in the United States, uh, you know, we have a very different tradition and and, uh, we respect the rights of a free press. Mm 
And I think it's good to see not just folks inside the White House press corps recognize that when we're dealing with the North Koreans, but somebody in the White House press office as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, once more, the book is called The Enemy of the People, A Dangerous Time to Tell the Truth in America. Jim Acosta, thanks so much for talking with me. Hey, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Thanks again to Jim Acosta for coming on the show. Order his new book, The Enemy of the People, A Dangerous Time to Tell Truth in America, on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. Follow him on Twitter at at Acosta and see him reporting from the White House on CNN. Whatever struggles you're facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, you can schedule secure video or phone sessions, as well as chat and text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Kick-Ass News listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code KICK. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com kick and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. And if you like what you're hearing, then rate and review us while you're there. Five-star reviews are the easiest way for new listeners to find us. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And feel free to email me with your thoughts, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. Until next time, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News.